For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt set a date next year for an initiative petition to legalize recreational marijuana for Oklahomans over the age of 21. After missing the general election, supporters of State Question 820 got good news with Stitt setting a March 7th special election date. Ryan, looking for looking at the recent success of initiative petitions on special elections, how does your group feel about the vote in less than six months? I mean, we feel great about it. We were prepared to run it. I mean, we've been uh, moving forward with like the idea of having an election on November twenty uh, November of twenty twenty two, and so you know now we've got five months, a little under five months, to run a campaign. Go talk to Oklahomans about this. It'll be a different kind of campaign because the uh, we're not going to have the same turnout uh, mm-hmm. drivers. You know, we've got the the most competitive gubernatorial election in two decades happening right now. You've got two U.S. Senate races. You've got congressional races. You've got uh, state legislative races. We'll be on with a smattering of municipal elections around the state of Oklahoma, but I think the large driver uh, for turnout is going to be state question 820. And, uh, you know, we feel very good about that. Our our recent polls show that we have strong support uh, among uh, all uh, just about every demographic of Oklahomans. Uh, We have strong support among uh, Democrats, uh, Republicans, independents, libertarians, and uh, you know, the things in the, the measure, uh, we have an enormous uh, support for the criminal justice reform provisions of State Question 820 uh, among voters. That's one of the strongest polling parts of, of State Question 820. So it is going to be uh, you know, a, um, a turnout campaign. You know, we're going to have to make sure that, that our supporters turn out. But uh, we're grateful that the over 164,000 Oklahomans that signed this petition that wanted their voices heard are going to have them heard on March 7th, and uh, you know, we're, we're ready to ask for their votes. Neva? Well, it will be a turnout issue. I mean, first of all, we're coming down to the final stretch on the November 8th election, and then 12 weeks later, basically, uh, you're going to have another very significant election, one which I think everyone expects there'll be high spending on both sides, if, assuming there is a campaign that uh, uh, gets mounted to try to defeat uh, mm-hmm. the uh, recreational marijuana issue. So um, I, I think that w- when you look at turnout, we have to remember that when m- uh, medical marijuana was passed, there were 900,000 votes cast. It was, a, it was a midterm primary in June of 2018. If you compare that even to the primary season this year, it was slightly over a half million folks that turned out. So uh, to have something that's freestanding, that's uh, uh, an issue that clearly there is a divide on. I mean, there, w- there will be significant uh, uh, support and significant opposition, I think, to this measure. And I think that as we see this campaign kind of uh, get jump-started very quickly after the uh, general election, it will be fascinating to see how they work on both sides to try to bring out their their folks to um, to get the result that they're looking for in March. And it's going to happen in the middle of the legislative session. That's going to be interesting. I'm not entirely sure what that dynamic is going to look right. like, but that's, you know, that is going to be the backdrop of this campaign is the legislative uh, session that will be uh, in session during the election and during most of the campaign. Uh, so that, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And, and in terms of opposition, you know, we're, we haven't really seen the kind of uh, funded opposition Yet, uh, I don't doubt that it may come, but um, when we look at the folks, the special interest groups that, that filed uh, legal challenges to state question 820 that ultimately you know, led to us not being on the November ballot, you know, my sense is that some of those organizations were motivated in part by 
an effort that they th- saw as to try to take state question 820 off the November ballot uh, so that there wasn't a variable in terms of turnout. You know, they wanted to be able to control the turnout model uh, for this uh, November election. And whenever, like Neva said, when you put marijuana on the ballot, you have marijuana-only voters or marijuana-motivated uh, voters that will show up that might not otherwise show up to an election. So um, that would have been a, a huge variable or potentially huge variable for November. And, you know, campaigns don't like variables. They, they like certainty. And so uh, we got pushed off uh, by those special interest groups that wanted to provide that certainty. And I think it will be interesting to see uh, when you have a freestanding election, whether there is some impact with elected office holders weighing in for mm-hmm. or against this this measure, because that could certainly be significant as well. If, if the governor uh, at the time uh, comes out, uh, Governor Stitt has said he's opposed to uh, 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 this measure. Um, I think that uh, in the instance of uh, Superintendent Hoffmeister, she's not indicated uh, clearly, I think. So it would be interesting to see how, as you say, with the legislature in, uh, how these folks gear up and have an impact one way or the other. Well, and part of the campaign will be to talk directly to lawmakers. I mean, we are going to be you know, sharing with them the polling data so that you know narratives against uh, in particular the criminal justice reforms of this that aren't grounded in fact are met with facts and met with the fact that people do support these criminal justice reform measures and and also talking about the revenue you know we're, we're in the final stages of putting together our fiscal impact analysis of what state question 820 would bring to the state of oklahoma but we can we can stay with certainty that it's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue additionally for uh, lawmakers to be able to spend on a number of critical services in the state of oklahoma you know, and, and I hope that, you know, if Governor Stitt wins the election, I'd love to win his vote. You know, he mentioned he admitted last night at the uh, the debate that he had tried marijuana at one point in his past. And I'm going to bet that whenever he did that, he didn't do it as a medical patient. He did it in a way that violated the law uh, and that if he'd been caught, he could have been charged and had a criminal offense on his record. And I think that if it's good enough for Kevin Stitt uh, and the governor to be able to use marijuana and get away with it uh, and, and escape criminal penalty, it ought to be good enough for all Oklahomans. Governor Stitt and State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister squared off in their only televised gubernatorial debate. The event was hosted by News 9 and nonprofit news outlet Non-Doc. Neva, how do you think it went for the candidates? Well, I think uh, I think it's what most people expected. This was going to be the one time face-to-face they could square off, kind of uh, throw some punches, uh, try to make some contrast between uh, uh, the, the their uh, opponent. I think that when you really look at both messages, I think you saw Governor Stitt, Superintendent Hoffmeister, both trying to stay on message to not only solidify and shore up their base, but then to see how they could appeal to uh, the undecided voters still out there. So um, all of that with the backdrop and the swirling poll numbers. Uh, but I think in this instance, most of the significant topics that voters would be interested in were addressed. Uh, they were thrown out there. They had an opportunity. And there was some give and take. There was some some agreement. So I think that uh, for the folks that actually did see this, and I think one of the things uh, uh, that uh, in my mind is unfortunate is that it wasn't um, – uh, live, uh, it was only live streamed and on uh, C-SPAN. It was not where many Oklahomans probably had as good a- good of access as they would like. So um, I think that this now becomes social media driven in terms of trying to extract the points that each side thinks that they scored on to try to get that message out to uh, voters through social media and other platforms uh, here in the closing stretch. Right. Well, first, a, a big thanks to Trey Savage and Nondoc and Storm Jones at News 9. 
they have hosted uh, a range of these debates uh, for, for very important races in the state of Oklahoma, including this gubernatorial debate. And I think that they've, they've done a fine job. I agree with Neva. It's the, the real uh, pitfall of that is that more people didn't see it. And, you know, I encourage people to go back online and watch this because it really did uh, give Oklahoma voters a real sense of who these candidates are and why they're running for office. And I think uh, Governor Stitt, for the most part, last night stuck to a national script. And, you know, Joy Hoffmeister mentioned that he stuck to this national script. I didn't count how many times he said Joe Biden, but I got the sense that, you know, uh, you know Joe Biden was going to pick up Joy Hoffmeister in the parking lot afterwards and go to Brahms and have a malt. You know, that was, you know, that's kind of what he's indicating that she she's part of the Joe Biden party. I just don't really think that that sticks. I think that Joy Hoffmeister has made a, a, a very credible case for herself out on the campaign trail with her advertisements. But then, you know, also last Last night, as she says that she is aggressively moderate uh, and, and that she's an independent thinker and she's not bound by these partisan issues the way that she feels that the governor is. It is kind of a bizarro world Seinfeld uh, moment where you've got the Democratic candidate for governor uh, campaigning as the protectorate for rural Oklahoma. Uh, and I think that that is a real message of the Joy Hoffmeister campaign that if Stitt's reelected, he's going to continue to try to push a vouchers program that she calls a rural, uh, rural school killer. And if you kill the school, you kill the community. And I can attest to that, you know, coming from Seminole, Oklahoma, if you if you do something that, that kills Seminole High School or you take away uh, Varnum High School uh, uh, in, in northern Seminole County and Stra- Strother and all those places, those communities that are built up around them, they go away. And I think that that resonates with Oklahoma in a way that transcends a lot of the national issues that I think the Stitt campaign would otherwise hope that this campaign is about. A new poll shows a near dead heat in the race for governor. The Amber Integrated Survey of 500 likely voters finds Hoffmeister with a one point lead over Stitt. The poll also finds Republican state superintendent candidate Ryan Walters now with a nine point lead over Democrat Gina Nelson. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this poll? Well, I mean, the good fortune for Oklahomans is that we finally get to uh, weigh in on a competitive race. I, I think that at this point, I mean, at least for the last 20 years uh, at this point in elections, most oftentimes it's preordained uh, who's going to win. And we've, we've got you know, straight party voting and uh, Republicans have had uh, this this momentum uh, to the legislative majorities, but also to statewide races in particular. It's been 20 years since we've had a competitive race like this uh, for for governor, but then also a competitive race for state superintendent. Those are the two marquee uh, uh, races out there. And, and Oklahomans finally get to weigh in on a competitive campaign. I think that that's really exciting. Um, this is going to be close. Uh, I think every vote's going to count. Anybody that's saying that this is going to be a landslide, I know that uh, the, the Governor Stitt campaign is you know, still saying that he's going to win this thing by a landslide. I just don't think that that happens. Uh, you know, if, if he wins, I think it's going to be close. I think if Joy Hoffmeister wins, it's going to be close. And they're going to fight this thing out to the very end. Neva. And I think the question is, will it be close? And, and certainly you get these competing pollsters um, uh, trying to make their case. And as you alluded to, Ryan, I mean, the governor's pollster has been very emphatic that he believes that the governor will be reelected. It will be a sizable win. Um, he sees uh, he really sees the potential not only to uh, uh, kind of run the score up, but to win all 77 counties. He's still maintaining that. And he he points to things from his standpoint that I think are fascinating. And, and part of it is just uh, this this whole concept of how people poll nowadays. And if you don't use um, if you don't use kind of a, a multimodal approach where you're you're using uh, landline, cell phones, uh, text, even uh, being pushed to uh, responses on websites or other things that you may not, if you're using just one uh, one 
one of those, such as texting, which was one of the surveys that, uh, that, that has been quoted recently. When you look at these different things, you get different results. So um, I think in the national picture, I mean, we've seen that uh, bear out. I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen races, uh, certainly uh, last cycle, where uh, polls continued to say that, uh, uh, that it was a close race and it wound, wound up being an eight or nine or 10 point uh, spread uh, on election day. So no one knows, and you're right, it's all about turnout. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are more Republicans in the state of Oklahoma now than Democrats. Uh, if Republicans come out and straight party vote, as, as has been the case in, in many recent elections, uh, that's a good night for Republicans from the top to the bottom. And so I think um, when you look at the issues, I mean, the two biggest issues are inflation and Joe Biden in Oklahoma. I mean, so the, the, the idea that uh, Republicans would nationalize uh, to some extent the conversation is not a surprise when you see Joe Biden's approval and disapproval numbers in the state of Oklahoma. So um, I think it will, I think it, I still see that uh, the competitiveness on the ground, the ground game that both campaigns are, are uh, exerting would indicate that it could, it could go down to the wire and be a very, very close race. And potentially, depending on uh, a turnout, it could be uh, the possibility that someone even is elected without 50% mm-hmm. of the vote. Yeah. It may be under 50% given uh, what we're seeing right now. Well, you know, and that's that's not unprecedented. You know, Governor Brad Henry and the, the Steve Largent, Gary Richardson campaign back in 2002. Mm-hmm. I think that um, the polling right now, if you're if you're in these two campaigns, of course, the, the number that everybody uh, gets fixated on is the, the ultimate number of, you know, who's ahead and who's behind the horse race. You know, that's what is part of the media story here. But if you're in the campaign, you're really using these polls for something different. You're figuring out who, who do I need to be talking to right now? And, uh, you know, Joy Hoffmeister, I think, has said that in terms of issues, uh, the, the most important issues to Oklahoma are corruption. Uh, you know, she said eight uh, the, in the debate, she said she has polling that shows that eight in 10 Oklahomans believe that there's corruption in state government and education and protecting rural schools from a, from a voucher scheme that she believes will close rural schools and kill rural communities. Those are, but if you look at wh- what she was saying and how she talked at that gubernatorial debate, uh, she was speaking to independent voters and persuadable Republicans. Uh, and Governor Stitt was in a situation where some of these polls seem to indicate that he's losing his own base. And so much of his conversation last night with voters was trying to shore up his own base, shore up those Republicans, because he is in a situation where if he can win, uh, you know, 95 percent of Republicans, he wins. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, you know, Joy Hoffmeister could win 100 percent of Democrats and still lose. And so she was definitely talking to those independent voters and those persuadable Republicans last night. Uh, and that's where I think that these polls are, are important, not so much as to, you know, give us tea leaves of who's going to win and who's going to lose. But uh, if you're a candidate, who am I talking to and what's the message that's resonating? And I think that's why uh, in Hoffmeister's case, she she did try to separate herself from Joe Biden, made made very definitive statements that uh, that she was not in the Biden camp, so to speak. And you had the governor begin to uh, make some differentiation on some issues like abortion, where he said if the legislature put a bill on his desk next year if, if, if that uh, uh, had to do with rape and incest and life of the mother, that he would sign it. So um, a, a departure from where he and the legislature has been to this point, as we've seen this uh, uh, change in the whole discussion, the pro-life discussion uh, mm-hmm. here in Oklahoma. So I think in the, in the closing stretch, you're right. It's about in rural Oklahoma, does that message resonate? I mean, will that be the deal breaker um, 
point that voters will look at? Is there rural schools or will it be Joe Biden? Will it be inflation? Will it be high energy prices? I mean, those are those are the unknowns at this point because they ebb and flow every time not only someone surveys that in the field, but just when you talk to voters on the street. On the abortion issue, I thought it was very interesting. You know, Governor Stitt gave up some of his ground on the most extreme abortion bans in the country. Like Neva said, he would he would sign legislation that would create exceptions. That's something that he had previously said that he would not do. Uh, I mean, so and then you had Governor, or uh, excuse me, Joy Hoffmeister. Uh, I, Governor Stitt called her Governor Hoffmeister during the debate. So uh, you know, <laughs> you know, go figure. Uh, but Joy Hoffmeister saying that. Uh, you know, she spoke a lot about reproductive rights last night. And so and I and I, I don't believe that that was a way to try to shore up the Democratic base, because, like I said, I believe that she has that Democratic base. What that's telling me is that the governor and Joy Hoffmeister's campaign are looking at polling results that show that extreme positions on either side of reproductive rights issues are not uh, are not favorable with a lot of voters, in particular, persuadable Republicans and independents. And I think that you know, that ought to give some encouragement to people that are fighting to protect reproductive rights in the state of Oklahoma, that the idea that the extremes control the narrative um, you know, may be going by the wayside. A new report finds Governor Stitt was privately raising funds to pay for a new mansion for the governor. Oklahoma City's News Channel 4 reports a nonprofit had quietly raised $6 million and even required board members to sign non-disclosure agreements. Meanwhile, Stitt is facing criticism for living in a $2.2 million home in Edmond rather than the governor's mansion, despite the state spending $2 million to renovate the building. Neva, should Stitt and his family be living in the governor's mansion? Uh, certainly, it's the prerogative of any governor to decide where they live. I mean, precedent has been that uh, first families have lived in the governor's mansion since uh, the 1920s when the mansion was built. Um, so the um, uh, the issue really gets down to how does the public uh, view that, and is it an issue with the public? And so uh, certainly uh, K4 and their exclusive nine, million, nine minutes uh, uh, that they kind of rolled this entire uh, conversation out um, certainly got a lot of attention and had some political sizzle. Now, the, I think it's important to note that this was not really the first time that this had emerged mm -hmm. as something that was going on uh, uh, a year ago or two years ago when it first began. There was there were some um, news coverage on that that point, but fairly limited. So I think in this instance, uh, it gives again something for the voters to look at and something for them to decide: do they like it or do they not? In, the, in this uh, piece that they aired, they talked about the fact that uh, previous uh, uh, governors and first ladies had been uh, basically not very uh, uh, not very positive on that. I mean, when it was uh, when it was presented to them, it was not something that they all seized on and were wildly supportive of. So um, I think you I think you kind of see it run the spectrum in terms of the average voter. I mean, what they think about that. But it certainly is in the closing stretch of a campaign. It is something that is going to have a little bit of impact without question. Right. Well, and I think as most Oklahomans right now are struggling with inflation, struggling on uh, the the front steps of a, of a recession hitting uh, Oklahomans. And I, I know that the governor likes to talk about how we've got this you know, booming economy in Oklahoma. But for a lot of Oklahomans, the reality is, is that they're struggling. You know, they're, they're struggling to make the dollar go further at the grocery store. They're struggling to make the dollar go further with their rent, with their mortgage payment. And, you know, to have a governor say, you know, that this beautiful mansion, mansion, on 23rd and Lincoln uh, that you drive by and to say that that's uninhabitable. Uh, you know, we couldn't, couldn't imagine living there. 
uh, I think that that just you know strikes a tone with most Oklahomans of like where what planet are you from? Um, because you know if you drive through a lot of the a lot of the state of Oklahoma, most Oklahomans don't live in mansions. Uh, you know they they live they live in homes uh, that are very modest and that they work very hard to uh, to keep uh, in their name to keep a roof over their family's head. And to have somebody say, well, I, I can't even live in this mansion. I've got to go to this mansion up in Edmond and live there uh, in, a, in a home that costs more than most people will ever spend for housing in their entire life in the state. And then uh, and then to come back and say, well, we need to uh, update the new governor's mansion. And even the former first families, Republicans and Democrats in that room, didn't want that to happen. There's a there's an important function of the governor's mansion. Um, it It is symbolic. It does create an opportunity. You know, former Governors have used it. Uh, Dr. Bob Blackburn mentioned that you know former governors have used this uh, to host legislators over for breakfast in the morning during the legislative session to talk about important issues. I remember going over there uh, to visit uh, both with uh, you know during Governor Henry's administration uh, in, in the mornings to with with bipartisan groups of legislators and those informal meetings you know led to real progress on on issues and I think that that kind of uh, that kind of uh, operational standpoint of what the, the mansion can do and what it symbolizes for Oklahomans, that regardless of what party you're from, when you get elected, that's where you live. Uh, and most Oklahomans just don't buy that it's uninhabitable. Well, and, and the uninhabitable question, certainly when you look at last year, taxpayer dollars, $2 million mm-hmm. spent, um, basically to do the uh, the needed upgrades. I mean, we had uh, the plumbing and structural and electrical issues were addressed. Uh, they they put a new kitchen in. They, they did some geothermal uh, heating and windows and a new roof. I mean, so the mansion has been uh, upgraded and improved in terms of what was needed to to uh, address very significant issues. And so I think the other thing that's come out of this whole storyline is the fact that that there has been an admission that it would be after the election that they would roll out this idea of building this new governor's mansion on the property where the existing mansion is right now at 23rd and Lincoln, and uh, that the funds would be completely uh, uh, from uh, private uh, private individuals and foundations. But the issue that comes along with that, of course, from the state standpoint and from the public uh, view of it, is that there are there are ongoing costs, whatever the uh, mm-hmm. the, the uh, place where the the governor and his family are residing. So, uh, and that's raised some questions. Obviously, if the governor's not residing in the uh, public uh, um, publicly provided uh, home and residence, and is using his private residence, then uh, ostensibly most of those. Uh, um, the costs would be picked up by the governor, not by the state, if it's a property not owned by the owned by the state of Oklahoma. So it raised a lot of questions. It it raises uh, uh, issues that I think will again crop over into next year and and be issues to be addressed uh, after the election. But certainly something that uh, voters can decide: is it important to them or not? And then the other angle are the non-disclosure agreements, uh, which is you know very troubling when we're talking about. Public property. I mean, the, the governor's mansion is the people's mansion. You know, that's ours. I mean, the governor lives there, but it's the people of Oklahoma's mansion. And to have non-disclosure agreements about its future and about its upkeep, uh, to keep that secret from the people of Oklahoma, that's that's troubling. Republican candidate for Oklahoma County District Attorney Kevin Calvey is accusing his Democratic opponent, Vicki Behenna, of complicity in the disappearance and possible murder of two people. Calvey made the accusations during a live stream debate between the two. 
This comes as the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation is still looking into Calvi for campaign-related expenditures from his campaign. Ryan, what do you think of Calvi's accusations and investigation? Well, I didn't have this one on my 2022 election cycle bingo card <laughs> uh, that, that any candidate would accuse any other candidate of being complicit in, in murder. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it isn't surprising, I think, that this is Kevin Calvi's style of politics. I mean, he plays uh, a very, uh, you know, bare-knuckle uh, style of politics, and if he thinks that he's got a charge that that he believes in, I don't, I don't doubt for a moment that he really believes in this charge, uh, that he'll throw it out there uh, and, and, and put it out in the universe and, and force Vicki Bahana to have to respond to it. It, it is, um, you know, the, the facts uh, of, the, of the case are, are such that it becomes difficult to explain it uh, in, in a 30-second soundbite or in a 90-second response during a debate or maybe in a 15-second response in a debate. So, you know, anytime that you can put your, your opponent in a situation of having to explain a complicated uh, situation in response to an over-the-top charge, then you've really done something there. I don't know that most Oklahoma voters are going to, you know, think that Vicki Bahanna is complicit in murder, but it definitely, you know, creates this dynamic that Vicki Bahanna has to talk about now instead of talking about her campaign. And, you know, to that extent, I, you know, maybe Kevin Calvey got, got it some sort of an advantage there, but that's really, I don't think what this campaign is going to come down and turn on. I think that this campaign is going to turn on, you know, whether the people of Oklahoma want, uh, you know, a really kind of complete overhaul in the district attorney's office or whether they want uh, some, some reasonable changes in the district attorney's office. And uh, that those, and that's created this really interesting dynamic um, among the criminal defense bar in Oklahoma, where who are typically going to be supportive of a more liberal, progressive, democratic candidate. And a lot of the criminal defense bar, they want to see that complete overhaul in the district attorney's office. And so you've seen these traditionally democratic voters uh, begin to support Kevin Calvey because they see him as somebody that, that really will throw a match on the bonfire. Uh, and they, they think that that's a, a good thing. And, you know, that's, that's Kevin Calvey. I mean, if you want somebody that's going to do that, Kevin Calvey uh, is the kind of politician that has a record of saying that. I mean, heck, he even threatened to set himself on fire once. So, <laughs> <laughs> And that's now on a television spot, I noticed uh, just this morning by, uh, by Vicki Bahena, oh, or, yeah. or at least folks on her behalf. I don't remember if it was the campaign or some independent group, but certainly that's something that's going cool. That's fired up on the uh, on the campaign trail, no question. So, I think I think the other thing is, I mean, what this was was, as you say, Ryan, it was a it was a clear slugfest. I mean, both of them uh, basically casting uh, aspersions on each other's character and integrity and their careers, and really trying to taint the other one. And it was less about talking about one's own um, vision and. Uh, ideas for the DA's office, something that, as you say, I mean, we've had a district attorney, David Prater, has had an illustrious 16-year career uh, in the DA's office. I mean, uh, last time, four years ago, not even opposed for re-election. So it's going to be a big shift uh, at the at the courthouse with the DA's office. A lot of change we will see regardless of which of these two candidates uh, winds up in the uh, in the winter column on November 8th. But I think that voters, by and large, in these down-ballot races, particularly at the courthouse, historically, have been voting party. And when you look at that, I mean, you have 42% Republicans in Oklahoma County now and 38% Democrats. So again, it's back to who gets out their base and who does the best job of getting their message out and just delivering those folks to the, to the polls more than anything else. And, um, and independents, certainly, I think this season, we're seeing uh, both sides uh, be more competitive 
of trying to talk to them because uh, in close races, they're certainly a factor. And I think in this race in particular, we may see a little bit more interest uh, at, at the uh, at the uh, DA race level. And they could be uh, in a very close race, could be a deciding factor. Well, and, you know, this is one of those campaigns where uh, they, they may be breaking through a little bit on the issues, but they're competing with, you know, very competitive races, the state superintendent race, the gubernatorial race. So there's not a lot of oxygen left in the room, You've, you know, and for them to be able to talk about things like the record number of jail deaths that have happened this year. Uh, and, you know, Vicki Bahannon pointed out that uh, most of those jail deaths have happened to people that are there pre-trial. And so they're presumed innocent and they, they've been dying in the jail. Um, but then to have a conversation with voters about uh, pre-trial justice, uh, to kind of have a conversation about you know, whether or not these people should be getting bail or bond amounts, you know, why are they in jail to begin with? Is it a public safety reason or is it a, a money reason? And that's a conversation I think is an important one. I think that Vicki Bahanna and Kevin Calvi have important things to say about that, but it's difficult to have that conversation with voters when there's just not a lot of oxygen left in the room. And, you know, one of the things related to the jail that uh, uh, Kevin Calvi said in that debate was the fact that his goal as county commissioner was one thing primarily, and that was to get a new jail without a tax increase. So he's anchored this as a significant part of his campaign uh, conversation, and we'll see if that really impacts again uh, moving some folks, uh, moving some folks maybe to uh, pay attention to this race that normally would not. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.